This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 128. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, convincing a court that an EUO is not a deposition. Hey everybody, I hope you're having an amazing week. As you know, this podcast is about all things deposition related. But I've talked both in the book and in this podcast many times about tools for gathering testimony other than depositions and about how to decide which tool and when. Depositions are, of course, the norm for gathering testimony in large part because there is a very well-defined set of rules, a well-defined framework that governs them. We all know what they are, what they allow, what they don't, and how we can use them once they're done. But sometimes a deposition isn't the best tool. Sometimes an affidavit works better. And sometimes the right tool for gathering testimony is what we're talking about today, a sworn statement, or EUO, the acronym for examination under oath. So for our purposes, a sworn statement, or EUO, is simply an oral examination under oath before a court reporter. And by way of background, the term examination under oath, EUO, has its roots in insurance law and practice. The concept itself originates from standard provisions found in many insurance policies. Those provisions permit insurers to require an insured to appear and give sworn testimony during the course of an insurance claim investigation without the need for an actual lawsuit to be filed. While it's a bit challenging to pinpoint the exact historical origin of the term, the practice of taking sworn testimony to investigate claims can be traced back to old maritime and fire insurance policies. As insurance practices evolved and became more formalized, these provisions allowing for EUOs became commonplace in various types of policies. The rationale behind the EUO is to allow insurers a mechanism to prevent fraud and to gain a thorough understanding of the circumstances surrounding a claim, especially in cases where there are uncertainties or potential inconsistencies in the presented facts. So over time, the term examination under oath became abbreviated as EUO in insurance and legal circles, and it's now a well-recognized term in both the insurance industry and legal profession. And in legal circles, it's become an increasingly popular tool. EUOs are not conducted pursuant to any rules of civil procedure, and in particular are not conducted pursuant to or in compliance with Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30, the main deposition rule, or its state equivalents, and they aren't identified as depositions. In fact, my best practices tip for EUOs is that you specifically tell the witness you're going to be examining while on the record that it's not a deposition and further that you explain in detail the differences between the two. And to further underscore that a simple sworn statement or EUO isn't a deposition, I would note that they are regularly conducted by non-lawyers, including investigators, paralegals, and insurance adjusters. But even so, some courts and lawyers still struggle with the fact that an EUO is something intellectually and procedurally distinct from a deposition. Lawyers and judges both 
if not familiar with the tool, may immediately describe your EUO as a secret deposition, as a deposition conducted in violation of the rules, and they may even seek sanctions. In a recent motion to strike filed in a federal civil case, uh, the citation to which we've included in the show notes, that's the JET case, J-E-T-T, a defendant argued that a court should strike a sworn statement simply because the defendant asserted these sworn statements were in effect unnoticed depositions. And here's what the defendant said in part in that motion to strike. If the court decides not to sanction this practice, meaning not to punish it, what will prevent a party from gathering similar EUO testimony from any and all witnesses, including individuals who both sides chose not to depose? It seems that unknowing witnesses will then be sitting for EUOs with court reporters multiple times, which is not contemplated by the federal rules. What is to stop an unscrupulous party from simply choosing not to engage in discovery at all and then taking numerous EUOs from witnesses within their control and then promptly disclosing and using the EUOs to withstand summary judgment. End quote. Very strident language. Well, you could literally substitute the word affidavit for EUO, and then you might wonder why anyone would make this argument. Let me paraphrase that statement in the motion to strike again, but this time substituting the word affidavit. If the court decides not to sanction this practice, again meaning to punish it, what will prevent a party from gathering similar affidavit testimony from any and all witnesses, including individuals who both sides chose not to depose? It seems that unknowing witnesses may then be, I'm substituting the language here, may be signing affidavits multiple times, which is not contemplated by the federal rules. What is to stop an unscrupulous party from simply choosing not to engage in discovery at all and then taking or gathering numerous affidavits from witnesses within their control and then promptly disclosing and using the affidavits to withstand summary judgment? Well, that might actually be a very smart strategy. Again, I talked in the book, the current edition, about the differences between depositions, affidavits, and EUOs, and they all serve distinct purposes. In some cases, taking no depositions at all makes sense, just depends. You might decide to use affidavits instead, rather than exposing witnesses to hostile cross-examination before dispositive motion time. Litigators use affidavits in lieu of depositions or in lieu of developing certain testimony on a specific topic during a deposition all the time. Well, in rejecting the defense motion to strike the sworn statement in the Jett case, the chief judge of the Florida Northern District had the following to say, quote, the traditional practice of securing affidavits for use in support of summary judgment often involves a statement written by counsel specifically for that purpose which is then presented to and signed by the affiant. The court fails to see how an unedited transcription of the witness's own words is not, if anything, substantially more reliable than the traditional alternative, meaning affidavits, uh, end quote. That's a beautiful quote, by the way, if you routinely use sworn statements or EUOs. We've got the citation to that order 
in the show notes. It's very nicely said. But we've also got some other great cases for you in the show notes that make the same point, including the Bozeman case from a federal appellate court and the Reed case in the show notes from an Indiana federal judge. What I really wanted to do today was just to emphasize the importance, if you use EUOs or sworn statements, of setting them up in a way that will best allow you to defend against these kinds of attacks if your sworn statements are challenged. I think it's the use of a court reporter that seems to throw most lawyers and judges off, as if who types the statement is dispositive or determinative on the issue whether oral testimony taken in a question and answer format is a deposition or not. And part of the problem is that there is no one-size-fits-all definition of the word deposition or what makes a deposition a deposition. There are actually very few cases that define a deposition. The rules certainly don't. We've got some in the show notes to illustrate the point, but they're generally not very useful because they tend to involve tangential issues that didn't require the court to address the definition of a deposition or the characteristics of a deposition in a head-on meaningful way. Sometimes the cases simply say a deposition is an examination under oath of a witness. Now that's an accurate kind of satellite view of a deposition, but that obviously ropes in all live sworn testimony, including testimony at trial or final hearing. Those certainly aren't depositions. So we know there are other characteristics of a deposition that distinguish it from other methods of capturing sworn testimony. All right, so what are they? Well, the many distinguishing features of a deposition, as contrasted with an EUO or sworn statement, all revolve around compliance with Federal Rule of Civil Procedure or its state equivalent, the main deposition rule in your jurisdiction, including the issuance of a compliant notice, the use of subpoenas, which cannot be used to compel appearance at a sworn statement or EUO, the conduct of the examination and cross-examination, again, in compliance with the rule, the use of an officer qualified under the rule to record the testimony, compliance by the officer with the requirements of the rule in capturing the testimony, including providing opportunity for review, providing copies to parties, and of course, the ability to use the transcript for all purposes allowed by the rules for depositions if the deposition complied with Rule 30. And let's look at it from the other side. If you conduct an EUO or sworn statement and try to offer it at trial, you're likely to hear immediately that its taking did not comply with any of the characteristics of a Rule 30 deposition and thus is not admissible in lieu of live testimony. And that would be absolutely correct. An EUO or sworn statement is not admissible in lieu of live testimony, just as an affidavit isn't admissible in lieu of live testimony. And let's take that a step further, because apart from the rule-based characteristics of a deposition, the intent may also make a difference. Did the lawyer who took an EUO or sworn statement of the witness portray it as a deposition to the witness? Did the lawyer mislead the witness into believing they were giving a deposition and then switch to the EUO format? Did the lawyer use the trappings of a deposition, specifically a notice and subpoena, as a subterfuge to get the witness to appear for the EUO? And so was the witness originally noticed for a deposition and subpoenaed? And lastly, did it take place at the same time and date 
as the witness was originally noticed. That can be an indicator as well. And sometimes the intent of the court might play a role in determining what we have here. In the Glenn case in the show notes, resolved by an intermediate appellate court in South Carolina about 60 days ago, the appeals court affirmed sanctions against one of the defendants, Fisher Controls, where its lawyers took a statement of a witness after the court entered a protective order saying lawyers could not depose the witness. Now that witness, who happened to be Fisher Controls' own expert, was apparently noticed to be deposed by its lawyers on January 8, the day before a January 9 pretrial hearing. But the trial judge had entered a protective order saying, no, you can't depose him on January 8, although you might be able to depose him later, depending on what the court ruled at the pretrial hearing the next day. According to the appellate opinion, the defendant's lawyers, now forbidden from deposing that witness on January 8, took a sworn statement of him instead on the same date and at the same time that the witness was scheduled to be deposed. Now, to be sure, the order forbidding the deposition of that expert did not forbid the gathering of testimony from him in any other way. It simply said, no deposition. What seemed to draw the court's ire was when Fisher Control's lawyers proffered the sworn statement during the conclusion of the trial, at the tail end of the trial. The trial judge in that case concluded that the sworn statement was, in effect, in those specific circumstances, the very trial preservation deposition that the court had forbidden. And the Court of Appeals affirmed the imposition of sanctions, at least in part, for the taking of the sworn statement. So that's an example of a situation where there may be indicators that a sworn statement taken by lawyers was really meant to be a deposition. We generally can't offer or proffer sworn statements or affidavits as admissible testimony at a trial, as we just talked about. So maybe the court in the Glenn case thought, rightly or wrongly, that the proffer evidenced an intent that the sworn statement be a substitute for the trial preservation deposition that the trial judge had specifically said could not take place. All right, so let's talk about some practice tips and then we'll wrap up. If you wish to take an EUO or sworn statement, whatever you prefer to call it, here are some practice guidances about how to go about it to ensure that you are maximally protected against accusations by an opposing counsel or court that what you did was a secret or unnoticed deposition or that you intended it to be an end run around an express prohibition against the deposition of a witness. First, be sure that there are no court orders in place broadly forbidding the gathering of testimony from the witness, whether in letter of the order or in spirit. Maybe the order specifically forbids a deposition of a particular witness, but maybe it also has language or maybe the circumstances of the entry of the order suggest that what the court intended was that there be no further evidence gathered from that witness. Second, if you've previously noticed a witness for an actual deposition and served the witness with a subpoena and now wish to take an EUO instead, it's a best practice to issue a notice of cancellation of the deposition as to that witness and a best practice to conduct a sworn statement on some date 
other than the one when you subpoenaed the witness to appear for a deposition. Doing it on the exact same date and at the exact same time as you subpoenaed the witness to appear for a deposition just has bad optics. I've counseled against doing that before. In fact, here's what I wrote in the most recent edition of the book, 10,000 Depositions Later, page 45. I said, suppose you have scheduled one or more witnesses for depositions and served them with subpoenas, but now want to take an EUO instead. In that situation, it's wise to avoid conducting the EUO on the same day you noticed and subpoenaed the witness for deposition. Close quote. That's exactly what I said in the book, but that is unfortunately what the lawyers did in the Glenn case that we just talked about. It's not unlawful to switch to an EUO and just happen to conduct it on the same day that you noticed that same witness for deposition. It's not illegal. It's not immoral. But a judge may find that it has the aroma of a bait and switch, that maybe you lured the witness there using the deposition notice and subpoena. A judge may find that it has the aroma of a disguised deposition. So don't do that. Consider also conducting it at some location other than where the witness had been subpoenaed to appear for deposition. Again, is that mandatory? No. It's just an issue of optics. It's bad optics. Do it on some other day, at some other time, at some other place. That was, in my opinion, one of the problems that the lawyers in the South Carolina Glenn case ran into. They scheduled that sworn statement for the exact same date and time as the deposition that the court forbid. Didn't violate the court order, doesn't violate any particular principle other than the one about optics. Next point, when conducting sworn statements or EUOs, whichever you want to call them, same thing, you must explain on the record to the witness that this is a voluntary sworn statement and that it is not a deposition. You must explain the differences on the record. Let the court and opposing counsels see that you explained the differences to the witnesses and that the witness understood that. I covered all of this in the most recent edition of the book and I covered it in great detail. It consumes the entirety of pages 39 through 47. Now, what does explaining it on the record during your EUO of a witness also do? Well, it allows the court to see your intent at the time you did it. It also gives you a chance to include in the record differences between an EUO and a deposition that you may have to argue later. But it also has another benefit. It will also help you prevent the witness from backtracking on you if and when the witness is pressured either by opposing counsel or perhaps by a court to say they thought they were there for their deposition. That isn't possible if you ask the witness to confirm on the record that they understand this isn't a deposition. If you ask the witness on the record to confirm their appearance is entirely voluntary. If you ask the witness to confirm on the record that they were not coerced to appear, weren't paid anything, weren't made any promises, and weren't told what to say. And I recommend you cover those in a series of simple questions with a simple answer following each, rather than explaining it all in a lengthy narrative and then asking the witness to agree after three or four minutes of explanation. In other words, you might begin by explaining that appearance at the sworn statement is entirely voluntary and then immediately asking the witness if they understand and if they are in fact appearing voluntarily. 
Then you may ask the witness if they've been promised anything and asking for confirmation that they have not. Then asking the witness to confirm they were not coerced and so on. The more thorough you are in this discussion on the record before you begin your examination of the witness, the stronger your insurance policy against mischaracterizations of the sworn statement. Now, if, as in the Glenn case, you have an order prohibiting the deposition of a given witness, you have to consider both the letter of the order and its spirit. In the Glenn case, it appeared the court was upset because it had explicitly forbidden the defendant from gathering testimony in the form of a deposition. But it also appeared that what the court intended, given the arguments that the late development of testimony by an expert witness would be prejudicial, it also appeared that what the court intended is that no testimony be gathered from that witness at that time and absent further court order. The court didn't forbid an affidavit or sworn statement, but it did appear upset that the sworn statement was used to get around the express prohibition and perhaps possibly the known intent of the order. Now, if you are challenged about the nature or admissibility of a sworn statement or EUO at dispositive motion time, it's important to emphasize and discuss the distinctions between a deposition and the sworn statement. Your court may be encountering this issue for the first time, so assume nothing. So I recommend you explain among the following. One, that there is no one-size-fits-all definition of a deposition. Two, that Rule 30 and its state equivalents set forth very clearly the characteristics and requirements that must be followed if an oral examination is to qualify and be treated as a deposition. A deposition requires a proper notice and an opportunity for all parties to examine the witness. Sworn statements are not formally noticed. Depositions must generally be conducted during the discovery phase of the case, not before or after. Sworn statements, on the other hand, may be taken before a lawsuit is filed and at any time thereafter, including after discovery closes, just as affidavits can be drafted and executed after discovery closes. Point out that for an examination to constitute a deposition, the notice must not only be issued to all parties, but must also follow the requirements of the rule and must contain specific information. And that the absence of that notice means that what you have done by definition is not a deposition. Point out that depositions must comply with Rule 30's specific requisites about the officer who may conduct the deposition. That depositions come with the power to subpoena, to compel witnesses to appear. Sworn statements, not at all. Point out that depositions can be conducted in a variety of formats, including video or audio, without a stenographer. And so the mere presence of a stenographer can't possibly be the dispositive characteristic of a deposition. And of course, point out that depositions can be used in a variety of ways that affidavits or sworn statements cannot, including as a substitute for live testimony. So the very definition of a deposition and its requirements in the context of Federal Rule 30 and its state analogs isn't merely an oath and stenographic recording. It involves many procedural steps and missing even one of them means that the examination under oath does not qualify for treatment as a deposition. And here's something else to think about. If you're in a jurisdiction that limits the number of times 
that a witness can be deposed, such as in federal court, argue that the giving of a sworn statement by a witness in no way precludes any party from actually taking the deposition of that witness. That's another way of saying these are two very different tools. And you'll see a collection of cases that make that very point in a defense memo of law cited in the show notes in the Zorn case, Z-O-R-N. All right, as always, a very interesting topic and one that sometimes stirs up a bit of confusion and controversy. It's a tool that has been around a very long time and it has tremendous value when used appropriately. But it's very important to take some basic precautions as it is being arranged and conducted to ensure there is no room for anyone to argue that it is a deposition and not a simple sworn statement or EUO. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening and be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, The Premier Litigation Guide to Superior Deposition Practice, now in its fourth edition at more than 600 pages. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again soon.